Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the micro-daily podcast to Wednesday's micro-analysis. We are living through some interesting times, has to be an understatement. A global pandemic on top of a recalibration of our relationship with Europe on the tail of a decade of austerity. A resurgence of populism and far-right movements in many countries. These changes are huge and terrifying, but are they also an opportunity for a reset? I am Alex Andreu, and I'm especially delighted to welcome to today's program the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, the British Liberian economist, Miata Fanbule. Welcome, Miata. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's it's my pleasure. As we were discussing before we started recording, I'm a bit of a fanboy. Um, uh, how has uh, lockdown been for you? Uh, have you been able to do most of your stuff from home? Yes. I mean, so we, the entire office moved uh, into remote working actually before lockdown because we could sort of see where we were headed. Um, yeah. And it's it's worked pretty well. I mean, I've got three kids. So I've got um, a five-year-old and two-year-old twins uh, who've been at home. And, you know, there was a big chunk of time where we didn't have much childcare. So like many parents across the country, trying to do the impossible job of balancing uh, kids and work, which was mm. uh, special. <laughs> it, it all bleeds into the other and it just becomes one amorphous mass, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> um, now, uh, you spent some time in Cameron's cabinet office. I, I remember that right uh, I didn't make that up, did I? You were in the cabinet office as an advisor. Yes, I was. I was. So I, I sort of started my um, civil service career in a thing that was called the Prime Minister Strategy Unit. And actually started under Blair uh, Brown. Um, and then the last uh, year and a half I was there was uh, under Cameron. Um, so I, I've got to see three very different prime ministers uh, with three very different bents of government. Oh, well, what, I mean, if you could sort of reduce the difference to a very short thing, what would you say the, the main differences were between the three of them? So I think, if we're working backwards, I think Cameron definitely had a more relaxed style. Um, and there was a sense that, 
you know, he was almost a kind of kind of presidential style. Uh, so he would oversee, but left a lot of autonomy to his different uh, departments and ministers. Um, and you didn't always get a sense that there was a clear plan or vision that he was trying mm. to drive through. It was pretty kind of decentralized and he was pretty hands off. I think Brown was very into the detail, uh, but but was a prime minister that was firefighting um, and, you know, would get into the details of reports or, uh, you know, bits of things that were happening in government in a way that you just don't expect of a prime minister. Um, mm. But that all, um, almost certainly crowded the strategic. Blair, who really enjoyed policy, so he was very much in the detail of things, but in quite a strategic way, with a sense that there was a very clear agenda that was trying to be driven by the centre, whilst trying to empower his different ministers and departments to work. Uh, mm. So from the very chillaxed, uh, to the very micromanaging. And I mean, although ostensibly the Johnson government belongs to the same party that Cameron was, I mean, they could not be more uh, different in, in policy terms, could they? No, they couldn't. Um, and I, I mean, I think What's quite interesting is how much of it is, if you like, baked into the style and if you, if, you know, the, 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 the political and ideological bent of the Prime Minister number 10 and how much of it speaks of events. And I think in any case, you know, so if you take something like austerity um, as something that was totemic under the Cameron years, uh, and there was, uh, you know, I, I, there was a genuine ideological project there. Um, there. There was a drive to reduce the size of the state, to push... Uh, more of the collective domain into civil society. Uh, if we all remember, Cameron came in under the idea of big society. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. that was fundamentally an agenda about a much smaller state. Um, and that was one of the, you know, they would argue that austerity was being driven by the public finances. You can have a big debate about that. Mm. Uh, but, but it was also a means to an end, uh, which was a massive retrenchment of the state. And then they hoped a very vibrant uh, third sector civil service, civil society sector would sort of step in um, its place. Uh, and you don't really get that, I think, with Johnson. I mean, he was very, very clear, I think, from the outset that the politics of austerity uh, wasn't right. I think, to be honest, he was basically following where the public were, um, because I think at the start of, you know, this decade, a lot of people swallowed austerity because they believed it was the only route out of the public finance um, crisis that, that, that we had, or that the government certainly painted as such. Um, and by the end, I think people's tolerance for it had waned. And so I think part of it is just following where the public mood is. But, but also, I think there is definitely a less strong ideological bent um, around reducing the state in a smaller state. But what isn't wholly clear is what the exact ideological project is of the um, Johnson project. Um, they sort of straddle a bit of everything. And to be honest, I think they are more probably pragmatic and opportunistic more than anything else. Well, it, it's interesting that um, uh, Michel Barnier, after the latest round of negotiations, I thought said something very, very interesting that hasn't been hugely picked up. He said that the problem with the level playing field and especially state aid um, is that he said, we have zero visibility. Uh, and what he meant was, we can't make out what this government's ideological right. slant is. So, so we, 
we don't know well whether they will turn out to be a, a big state interventionists or light touch deregulators or and so it makes it incredibly difficult for them to trust the direction and have a fairly loose arrangement on things like uh, state aid you know we i don't want to spend the entire um, chat on uh, uh, coronavirus, but it's obviously a, a huge, huge thing, and the economic reaction to that has been a huge thing. Um, Rishi Sunak has had a pretty good time of it in the media so far, um, but a few weeks ago I uh, interviewed on this podcast Deborah Meaden, uh, and she was telling me that the blanket approach was absolutely right for stage one, where you just gave money to everyone to keep things going. But that what she would look for in the coming months would be a sectoral approach, um, because her view was that if you persist with a blanket approach to financial aid, then it means you're spending money on sectors that don't actually need it and not spending enough money on sectors like hospitality that desperately need it and will need it for a longer time. What do you think? So I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I think, you know, Rishi has had a pretty good innings, to be honest, to start with. I think he surprised many of us um, because, you know, if you told me six months ago that a Conservative government would be putting in some of the measures, particularly the job retention scheme, underwriting 80% of the wages of you know, near on 10 million uh, workers in the country, I would have said you were having a laugh. Yeah, um, the, so the, arts, the arts package was particularly unexpected, I think, in my yeah, um, industry, yeah. Absolutely. So, so he, I think they have definitely responded, and I think you know they have tried to do what it is that they felt was necessary in order to try to prop up the economy in this really difficult time. I think what's quite interesting is, uh, you know, I, I was disappointed uh, by the kind of mini uh, b- budget that we just had, mm-hmm. uh, partly because I think you know my sense was we're not out of the woods yet. Um, I, I can't over, you know, emphasize just how absolutely catastrophic the economic crisis that we are in is. And it's just starting to kind of filter out, filter into people's lives now. Uh, But, you know, to be, you know, to be undergoing the, you know, deepest recession for 300 years, to be looking at levels of unemployment going up to 3 million, 3.5 million. And all of this, by the way, off the back of 10 years in which living standards have been stagnant. You know, so it's not just how absolutely atrocious this moment is and the recession is. It's the fact that it comes off essentially a decade in which we lost any advances in living standards, which is unprecedented in mm, historical mm, time. Mm. So, so, so there's, a, there's a lot of people and businesses who are already sort of very near the edge and about to to drop off like one like one of those machines you know in arcades where you drop pennies and you know s- suddenly everything collapses completely you know so and i think that the government should have acted more uh, because in order to stem if you like the thing that is to come but i think that they generally believed that if they just you know accelerated the pace of easing lockdown and opening up the economy that everything would bounce back 
Um, yeah. And so they've held, their, held back in order to see how things play out and then potentially will kind of respond in a far more aggressive way come the autumn. Now, I think part of the reason why they did that was because, you know, they did have a blanket approach in order to try and prop up the economy. And that's much easier to do. It becomes harder when you need to take a sectorial approach because it's more complex. Um, it requires far more nuanced intervention. And perhaps they didn't feel that they were ready to do that, but that has to be the approach, you know, where yeah. you've got parts of the economy like culture, like hospitality, some parts of retail, tourism, some parts of manufacturing that for a while are going to be completely hammered because they are having to maintain the restrictions that the government has asked them to do in order to contain the virus, which is still with us. And it's absolutely right that they are asked to maintain those restrictions. But there's an economic impact on that. There is a huge impact on their ability to operate at capacity, their ability to run their businesses, and so and for particular sectors to be viable. And in that context, you have to step in to provide support. And I think the, the dithering over doing that, I think it's going to cost jobs. I think it's going to cost businesses. Um, and I can only hope that... You know, come the autumn, we see what we didn't see in, you know, the summer, uh, which I think was a mistake, mm. but it wasn't wholly irreparable. And it, and it was, uh, it, to me, it grated uh, 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 sort of extra badly because it was presented as a sort of Rooseveltian package. And it was, I mean, it was nothing of the kind. It was, it was pennies compared to actually what is needed going forward. The European Union have agreed their package and they've decided to tie a lot of it into the new Green Deal. So to make a lot of the grants contingent on businesses becoming effectively greener going forward. Do you think uh, this government is going to move in that direction? The noises I'm hearing are not encouraging. So I think they will in rhetoric terms. You know, and by the way, I think it's an absolutely, absolute no-brainer. You know, we we know that we will only get through this crisis with a huge level of government investment and a massive fiscal stimulus to basically get the economy to rebound again. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to invest in large scale, not to do that in a way that looks to green and transition your economy would be absolute madness. So mm. we've got to, in some respects, respond to this crisis in a way that better prepares us for the crisis that is already upon us. And by the way, is bigger in terms of scale and magnitude, which is climate change. Um, so I think that tack is absolutely right. And I, I think the thing that is strange, uh, a little bit frustrating uh, about government is that they, they are there on rhetoric terms. You know, they, mm. they, they're talking about the need to do, a, you know, green fiscal stimulus. You know, they, they there are interventions, for example, uh, their green energy in, uh, efficiency intervention, which was right in sentiment. The thing that is absolutely missing is scale and ambition. Yeah. Uh, so uh, to give you an example, their green package was to the tune of three billion uh, and they dubbed that a fiscal stimulus. You know, the analysis that we've done at the New Economics Foundation suggests that actually a proper green fiscal stimulus needed to be closer to 28.3 billion. And that in itself you know, if you targeted it on things like energy efficiency, um, like um, home retrofitting, would have unlocked about 400,000 desperately needed jobs now over the course of the next 18 mm -hmm. months. And so, you know, they kind of, 
their instincts were there, you know, insofar as they were talking about it, but just the action, the actual substance just... Didn't follow through. Absolutely. You know the the famous uh, sort of prayer, grant me the the serenity to accept things I cannot change (laughs) and uh, the wisdom to know the difference and all, all of that. So let's concentrate on progressive politics for a moment. Um, We're probably stuck with this government for the next four years. What can Labour do not to waste those four years? What what can progressives do now to influence policy? So I think for me, there are two things. The thing that I think is, you know, it's hard to talk about uh, the, the language of opportunity when we are in the midst of something so horrendous and grave. Uh, But, you know, if I can use the language of opportunity, I think the space for it is the pandemic in in all its awfulness has exposed huge structural problems with our economy, you know, from the inequalities that exist between households uh, through to the fact that we were paying people that we absolutely rely on Mm. nothing in insecure work. Um, It's exposed, you know, how completely uh, denuded vital public services, whether it's social care, it's our health care system, it's our social security systems have been. And I think it is shifting the both the public mood, but also the political debate. So, you know, it's all the polling suggests that the public do not want to go back to the old normal, uh, that there was great recognition that there was something fundamentally broken about the way that things were working, and that people want this to be a point of departure um, and a reckoning, a pivot to something else. And and the political debate is sort of catching up with where the public sentiment is. So, you know, across the political spectrum, everyone is talking about the fact that the pandemic has exposed these things. Yeah. And everyone's talking about the fact that something needs to change. And those voices are coming from both the right as well as the left. And so for me, the biggest opportunity that we have is to lock in that sentiment and use it as a basis to drive some fundamental structural change in the economy in response to the pandemic. Mm. You know, so the, the, the sentiment of the new deal that the government tried to conjure up or the prime minister tried to conjure up was right. You know, we do need something of that order of magnitude and we need coming out of that a very different economic and social settlement. And I think there is a massive job for progressives, you know, across the spectrum um, and the Labour Party as well as a kind of, you know, visible national voice within that to be talking about the sorts of things that we need to do that responds to the economic crisis, but in a way that drives structural change, that fundamentally remakes the way that our economy works. Um, And if we miss that moment, because I think the public mood will change, I think politics will change because we're in a really volatile time. So if we don't lock that in, and that requires us to, you know, A, be very clear about the sorts of interventions that could generally solve both the immediate problem of the crisis, but start to change the nature of the economy, but also seek consensus. You know, we've got to talk about this in ways that appeal to the public. Yes, that yes. Feels common sense. I mean, mean, one example of that is that there is now a general acceptance that 
you know, the rate of statutory sit pay and by extension job seekers allowance is just not enough to live on. The the government fully accepted that by boosting it during the the furlough scheme. So we need to bank that in a way, don't we? Because if we don't talk about it now, in a year's time or two years' time, tabloid headlines about benefits cheats may have massaged that back into the opposite direction. Absolutely. And that's a fantastic example. You know, so our, you know, our social security system is now, and I can't, it's been done gradually, chipped away over 10 years. But if you think about benefits as a proportion of earnings, it is now the lowest amongst OECD countries. Um, and it is the lowest it's ever been in our post-war history. And I think, you know, for people saying, oh gosh, you know, I'd have to live on 90 pounds a week. Like, but no one can live on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were expecting a lot of people to live on that for a really long time. And, you know, this is a space for me. You know, we've got to get to a social security system because it's there for all of us. The, the awful thing that I think uh, some of the politics of austerity and the politics of the right did was to try and ghettoize social security. Oh, you know, only the those people that don't work hard and the scroungers get it. Whereas actually it was an insurance system for all of us. And it's moments like this when people who would have never imagined that they would have to rely on benefits will mm. have to rely on benefits. And we've got to ensure that it's a level that people can have a decent quality of life. You know, food bank usage has increased by 81% this year compared to last year. You know, people are genuinely on the breadline on universal credit. And yeah. what we're about to see is the ranks of people having to rely on an absolutely, my view, completely disgraceful amount of money is about to swell. And I think that will create a lot of political pressure to say, why is this thing not the thing you promised? We all pay into the system in order to have something that's there to ensure that we the basics that we need for a decent quality of life is there, whether we're in good times or bad times. Mm. And that's not the case now. And that has to be one of the things that changes out the course of the pandemic. Can a government with a majority of 80 be influenced, be nudged on issues on which they may be dogmatic? Um, do we work through the opposition? Do we work uh, directly through uh, organizations and foundations that are grassroots based? Do we work directly with voters so that they begin to see a shift in opinion and a shift in their polling? Um, be because it seems to me that the threat of losing voters is the only thing that can actually shift a government with such a big majority. Completely. So, I mean, our, our, and we've been trying to do a lot of thinking about this as we've been trying to strategize about what, you know, we at NEF can do to try and influence the government. And I think the conclusion that we've come to is that they aren't ideological, going to the start of the conversation, um, but they are ruthless about winning. Um, and we'll do anything to win if you judge it on the last sort of few years. <laughs> um, and, and so, and they are very attuned uh, to where public opinion is. Everything from their messaging through to particular interventions are just polled to the nth degree. And I think that is where the power for us lies. Because if you can mobilize public opinion around some of the stuff, they will move, they will yeah. bend. And particularly if they hear back from the public in their backyard, particularly red wall seats that they are desperate to hold on to in order to maintain that majority. So I think the political strategy for any progressive has to be, how do we work 
together. For me, that's the first bit, because I think one of the biggest risks is that, you know, there are so many of us in this moment that are saying this has to be a pivotal moment. We want to, to coin the phrase, build back better from this. Yeah, yeah. But if we do it in a fragmented way, which is in some respects what happened in 2008, we, we become less than the sum of our parts. We don't somehow galvanize all of this into a momentum and a force that drives change. So I think if we work together in order to try and do the job of mobilizing and shifting public opinion around some of these things. And it's interesting because when you poll the public, you know, they are often far more progressive than the government of the day. You know, you take something like public ownership, where the public have for a really long time been far more positive than, if you like, the political sphere has been on some of these things. So I think if you can mobilize public opinion, as well as actually mobilize people to be vocal and active, um, that there is going to be a lot of despair, anger and discontent. There will be those on the populist right that will be trying to exploit that for, if you like, negative campaigning, othering others, the the kind of nasty, toxic politics of that. I think for progressives, we have to try to do the counter, which is mobilise people for positive change, to be calling for things, these demands that, you know, become the building blocks of a new social settlement. And if we can do that across the piece, but particularly work with organisations and grassroots uh, groups and, you know, uh, MPs and local authorities and others within Red Bull areas in order to crystallise and amplify those demands where the government will be listening most acutely, I think that's the way in which we begin to influence them. Mm. Uh, and then there is a piece and there's a job for opposition parties, and that's Labour as well as, you know, the Lib Dems and SNP, because if they can then be playing back what the public is saying and saying, look, there is a policy platform here, the government will either be shamed or will be pressurised into wanting to respond. And I think if you can have that pincer, we have the hope where, you know, the times times demand it, in my view, but I think the politics is very malleable. We have the hope of locking in some of this change. Hmm. Is um, Brexit gone as a battle or is it still important to push for a comprehensive deal and a close relationship? Gosh, it's so funny. You know, we, we Brexit consumed our politics for <laughs> three years and we barely mention it. And it's happening in the background. Um, And, you know, look, my view was always the prospect of Brexit was not going to make us, our lives any better. Uh, But even though we are where we are, the worst possible outcome is to leave and leave without a deal. And, you know, such as the times that, you know, the pandemic is so all consuming now that the government can be threatening no deal, uh, moving towards no deal. And there's barely a squeak. And for me, that is just reckless. You cannot, when you when literally our economy is on its knees, do something that reckless. And I, I, I don't understand the rationale of it, unless that it is, you know, I say the government isn't ideological. I think on this it is. Um, I suspect they think, well, you know, we're about to crash anyway. So if, if ever, if you like, the fallout for, of a no deal was going to be absorbed, maybe easy to absorb now mm. but that's not how it works that's not how no, it works ec- economically not. though is it because you know if if uh, businesses are suffering x percent and then you add a systemic problem on top that costs them even another 
2% or 5%, that might push a lot of people over the edge that would have survived otherwise. It would have pushed a lot of people over the edge, but it also means that our recovery is going to be, you know, there's a question of how long it will take us to recover from yeah. this anyway. Um, but the, the the crisis will be deeper for it and the recovery will be longer and more painful. And in yeah. the end, all of this comes back to people's lives and their livelihoods. Um, and that's the thing that will be absolutely hammered. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that reason prevails. I think it would be the most reckless thing for the government to do, uh, to not secure a deal. And, and I hope that at the nth hour, that's the thing that, you know, wins out. But if they did that, I mean, it would go down in the history books as just, you know, national and political suicide um, yeah. and very, very reckless. Um, finally, what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on at the moment? What what future projects fire you up? So, you know, the work that we're doing at the New Economics Foundation is all around the recovery. Um, you know, we were part of, you know, a group of organizations that have been calling uh, for the government to build back better. Uh, there were about 350 organizations from business through to civil society, through to grassroots groups that all came out with a statement saying this has to be a point of pivot. And so the work that we're now trying to do is to, to, to flesh that out. You know, when we say we want to build back better, What does that mean in practice and how on earth do we do it against the backdrop of the economics that we face? Mm -hmm. um, and what would uh, a different type of settlement, uh, both in terms of the kind of public service offer, uh, but also how our workplaces and our labor market work, um, and also something that responds fundamentally to the climate crisis look like? And how can we help develop a prospectus with partners, with other organizations uh, that we can then do the job of trying to mobilize uh, public opinion around in order to try and influence the government to do the right thing. Uh, so that will be consuming every single moment uh, for the next <laughs> couple of years at all uh, as well. But for me, you know, these moments come, you know, once in a couple of generations uh, where everything is thrown up in a way that allows potentially profound change You know, NEF, our whole business has been to say the economy does not work for people and planet and we need drastic reform to transform it. Um, there is now a window and opportunity for us to do that through the ashes of this pandemic. Um, and we're trying to fire all cylinders in order to ensure that we crystallize it into meaningful change. Mieta, um, positivity can sometimes be uh, vague. Uh, but your positivity is actually um, very clear and practical. And I find that uh, incredibly infectious. So uh, thank you for an illuminating chat. Thank you. And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And please support us if you can on the funding platform Patreon, where you can search for the Bunker Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay socially distant, but emotionally available. This is Alex Andre from The Bunker saying over and out. Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.